Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we're looking at the top 10 questions to be asking yourself before starting on the investing journey. Make sure you take plenty of notes, but as always, make sure you take plenty of action. See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Pleasure to be here, Mr. B. Thanks for having me. Now, inquisitive by nature that you know I am, I'm going to ask you some questions today, put you on the spot, one of my favorite things. Specifically, fun episode, we're going to talk about the 10 key questions to ask yourself before making any kind of investment. Oh, this is a goodie. And as you all know, I love process and structure. And, and I think, you know, going through a checklist sometimes before you commit dollars makes an awful lot of sense. So this is gonna help a lot of people out there. I reckon we could probably group this into four core areas too right. in terms of your money, time, uh, your skill set that you bring to the equation, and I guess risk as well. Risk, nice. risk on the investment, your attitude to risk and so on. And if we group it in those four families, I reckon 10 questions, we're gonna give our listeners an ecosystem a really great game plan to work with. Speaking of which, if you are a listener right now, get out your notepad, write these questions down and actually group them because next time you go to buy a house, buy some shares, set up a business, whatever it may be, you can refer back to this at any point because mm -hmm. it is a universal set of questions. Great point. Great stuff, well, let's get stuck in. So look, probably actually a bonus question here, AB, they're usually at the end, but I'm gonna throw it to you at the beginning, is number one, have you actually thought about what you're about to invest in? Look, that's a huge one, isn't it? And you know, always begin with the end in mind is is such a, an important thing. I, I remember yeah, working years ago with Mark Boris uh, and and Mark's business track record, I think speaks for itself. And, and, and listening to him talk about setting up a business is always, what's your exit strategy? What's the end in mind? And I think any investment really sits in that camp. And I guess the challenge for many people, uh, and let's put a caveat on this, getting started in investing, getting started is the key thing. You must get started, but trying to start in the right way is obviously far better. Do it once, do it right, live off it forever kind of thing. And this notion of taking some time to think about what you want to achieve is crucial. We talk about this in goal settings. If you don't have specific goals, any road will take you there. The more specific you are, then the more tailored your action will be, but then the higher level of satisfaction you're gonna get from getting there. So it's definitely worth doing that. And I think in the world of investing, it's it carries with it an additional challenge, which I'd call, like a peer pressure push almost. So if you're working with someone and they've started doing crypto and you get to hear about how good crypto is being from them every second day around the coffee machine, well, that's gonna kind of push you in that direction. And, and it may not be a suitable place for you. Um, so taking the time to work out what's right for you is crucial because if you don't, you can start on this investing journey, you can be spending money, commit time and effort. And, and it's kind of like walking down the street with a stone in your shoe. It doesn't feel right. It's gonna become eventually, you know, it's gonna be pretty frustrating and eventually you're just gonna give up on the journey. And we don't want people to give up. We want them to get to where they wanna be comfortably. So taking this time to establish what does your game plan look like? What are you all about? And what are the things that are gonna get you to where you need to be a key? So let's let's dive headlong. What have you got for me? All right, well, let's, let's categorize this first couple of questions into the money camp mm. being camp number one. Question number one, question number two. Number one, how much capital do you actually have to invest? And number two, are you going to make regular contributions into that investment with your money? Oh, hugely important. And I think, you know, looking at it, if you've managed to save up a lump sum, you've obviously built a savings habit, which is huge kudos to you for being in that camp. Um, and, and, and you've got a chunk of coin to go and do something with. So do you just go and buy an asset, block of shares, for example, or maybe if it's a property, this could be the deposit that you're looking to plonk down onto that property, which is fantastic. You're in their game and away you go. If we're talking specifically about property and we're trying not to go too far down the rabbit hole at this stage with it, um, 
if it's an investment property, having the deposit plus all the different, you know, stamp and all the different odds and ends that go alongside that, having the lump sum, you're going to sort it out. And ideally, the rent from your tenant is then going to pay the servicing costs. The challenge with that sometimes can be, as you well know yourself, um, you know, from investing in property is that you can have a, a period of time where your property is untenanted. And if you've kind of gone all in with your deposit and you don't have the ability to service that debt with free cash flow, you don't have the ability to ride out that gap that may 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 be there with the tenant not being in there. If it's a primary place of residence, obviously with an investment property, currently you've got to put down a 20% deposit. So it's a reasonable chunk of coin you've got to put down. Primary place of residence a little bit less than that, but you've got to remember you've then got to have the money to pay the mortgage each week, each month, depending on your frequency there. So having that surplus cash flow, that ability to tip more in regularly is, is absolutely crucial. Um, equally from you know a stock market perspective, if we if we flip sides for a moment, you know, having an initial deposit to either set up a portfolio or buy a block of asset, and then have regular contributions to buy more, I guess is yeah you know, the ideal way because not only have you got the compounding of your additional sum that you've put in, but you've got that ability to continue to add and 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 that that time. Um, weighted adding of money is effectively dollar cost averaging, which is a which is a very useful tool to use from a stock market perspective. And like for example, buying an extra ETF if you're invested in um, yeah an index ETF every month or every quarter, putting that coin in to buy a, a further block of that is a great way of accumulating things over time. So there's a distinction: got a lump sum, and then do you have stuff that you're doing regularly uh, with that, which is very important. Secondly. You might have a lump sum that you put into an asset, but then the regular income uh, or the regular savings you have, you might choose to put into something else to give you some diversification. So do you just have a lump sum or are you going to have regular stuff going in? And secondly, are they going in the same pot or are you going to split them across two types of assets? Really interesting because you might have, let's say, 20 grand set aside to buy some shares and mm. then maybe allocate you know a thousand bucks every month that you get paid into that investment in the share portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. And continue through that. Indeed. Absolutely. And I certainly advocate that. So second camp then as we move forward, AB, would be, as you say earlier, the the time camp. And really two key questions would fall into that. Number one, are you going to be active or passive or on that scale, which side do you sit? And secondly, what kind of time frame are you actually looking to carry out that investment for, right? Hmm. The, the, the active passive is a huge one for people. Um, you know, most people's bandwidth is pretty chock-a-block with life. We find ourselves busier than ever. Maybe our social media commitments take over a bit more bandwidth <laughs> than they should. Um, but the reality is we've all got a finite amount of time. And, and so you know, finding something that requires more work isn't always that appealing, unless it's something that really excites you and you're interested in doing it. And I guess in many respects, this is where you know property can be quite appealing for people because you buy it and it just sits there and over time, according to the experts goes up in value. Um, Whereas with something in the stock market, whilst you might advocate having a sort of buy and hold blue chip share type portfolio, you know, I think you do need to keep your eye on the prize a little bit more because of movements in markets uh, and volatility around that. That said, if you're investing in things like ETFs, I think that de-risks that quite considerably and you can use that very much as a, as a, as a buy and hold uh, type mindset. So, you know, are you going to be active or passive in there is, is, is that first instance when, when, when choosing your asset. Secondly, you know, how much time is active? And it, it, again, even property sometimes is not as passive as people would think. Let's say, for example, you've decided that you're going to do a value add uh, through a renovation, as an example. How much time do you realistically have to do that? Or maybe you're building. Um, you know, these things take far more time than ordinarily you would expect. So have you created the time space to uh, to be able to do that is, is, is pretty important. And even if you're in the most staunch 
passive camp, say, look, I don't want anything to do it. I've got a financial planner, heaven forbid, uh, or, or I'm in a managed fund. Again, note that nearly 81% of managed funds underperform the market, so you might want to reconsider that avenue too. Um, you might feel that you're down that passive pathway. Uh, and I think you're doing yourself an injustice if you do that, because one of the things, again, that we advocate is having that money date at least monthly, possibly weekly, depending on the asset class you're working with, um, where you do look at how your assets are performing and keep tightening the nuts and bolts. If you're totally passive and you've got money in cash, for example, are you earning the best rate of cash on that? And it's probably worth spending some time to go through you know, Rate City or, or, or CanStar or something and look and see if there's a better place you can deploy that money. So even though you're totally passive, you do need to be a little bit active on it to make sure that you know, you're not sitting in something that's earning 0.1% when you could be earning you know, four and a half down the road uh, in a different type of account. So you know, there's always a level of stewardship, I think, that goes on with that. And th- it's just a question of how active that number is. And this, I think this boils down a lot too to your skill set and your education, which I know we'll touch on mm. in the latter parts of this episode. What about the actual time frame of that investment, AB? Yeah, if you're buying a property, say mm. it's an investment property, should you have an exit year in mind? Is it two years, five years, 20? I've got, I, I, I've got friends in so many different camps in the investment space. I've got uh, one guy just never sells anything. It includes cars. He just like all of his company cars just get passed down through the business or his family or whatever. He doesn't sell anything, and he's just an acquirer of assets. Never sells. You farm here. He's got your commercial premises there, a yard there. He's done a development here, so he, he just never sells. Uh, and that's his approach to it, and it's worked very well for him, uh, and, and 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 it suits his personality style. That's 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 why he does it. I think you've got to be very very careful in trying to time the market. Now, again, there's a caveat on there where you might put money into an account for a particular reason, and we talk about life proofing, which is a huge part in the financial planning space. I know earlier I sort of mentioned about people when they hand their money blindly over to a financial planner. The whole process of life planning is extremely important, and that's part of our mission with it. In, I guess the um, you know, financial literacy space is to educate people so they can life plan for themselves. So let's say you, you've got a chunk of money that you're going to invest and the specific purpose, the outcome for that investment is to pay for your kids to go to university is an example of that. You know, my kids are pretty young. My oldest is eight right now. So, you know, I've got a decade before, um, before Charlotte's going to be, you know, contemplating university. So if I were to set up some form of investment um, that was orientated toward being able to pay her tuition fees, for example, then that's going to have to have a maturity of around 10 years in order for that cash to then be released to do it. Um, and, and so you can time frame your investments to do that. But the, the, the challenge for that, Mitch, is that it's very, very difficult to time markets. You know, you're never going to get out on the high. You're never going to buy it on the low. And if you try and finesse it too much, you can often miss the big chunk that's in the middle too. So unless there's a really significant requirement for for that money to be released on a certain date i think you're better off just i'm not going to say play it by ear because that's a bit too laid back keep reviewing things for your money date take your time etc etc but i wouldn't be too focused on that's our exit for that unless there's a specific reason And, and if that is the case whereby you do need money on certain dates for certain things well, looking deeper within the asset pool of things that you can invest in, it might be that you've got a fixed term investment that expires closer to that time when you need the money. The challenge is if you need the money earlier, uh, uh, there's often a break clause in there where you, your return effectively gets decimated by breaking out of that fixed term early. You get penalized, rightly so, you're the one that's in breach of, of the agreement, so you should pay for it. Um, so you just got to be minded of those sorts of things. So I, I wouldn't get too caught up on the, I want to have a property for seven years and then sell it and parlay on. Um, 
That said, um, you know, when events change in your life, we talk about life proofing, that might be something you do. So, you know, the one bedroom bachelor pad on the beach, uh, that might be a first buy, or probably not a first buy for most people, but nonetheless, you know, it might be an investment that you have. Uh, you know, I remember my first place in London wouldn't be somewhere I'd be able to rear a family. I don't think I could fit my family in that place. And I know, <laughs> and I know I'm here with five kids, there's a few of us, but you know, the reality is that that gave me my start. And then as I've needed to scale, you could transact out of that into some Something different. So that might be the time frame that you use. And instead of actually being a year or a duration in that regard, it's a set of circumstance, married, having kids, kids going to uni, empty nester and so on. And I think those sorts of things can be quite useful in terms of benchmarking. And even though they're a little more vague than the specificity, I know you're a real precise person, it's probably a more practical approach for people. Got you. Good thing about shares, you buy and sell them anytime, so you can release them, they're pretty liquid. And I guess, as we say, a big part of this comes down to your actual skill set. So knowing when to sell, how to sell, for example. So if we look at that camp, there's probably three questions that sit in here, AB. What are your skills and your values? Have you done any education? And also, do you have the skill set to be able to actually understand what's going on in the economy right now? Mm. Three big ones. Yeah, look, uh, we, we're a huge advocate for investing in your education. The best investment you'll ever make is in yourself. And you know that quote's been sort of bastardized around by an awful lot of people. But it's such a truism because, you know, I meet people, I know we've got a specific episode in the podcast where we talk about, you know, investing in your education. Um, it's so, so crucial. And you're talking about doing, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollar property transaction, but you don't want to spend a little bit of time upskilling to make sure you join, you know, join the dots, dot the I's, cross the T's is is unfathomable. But it, I guess it it shows sometimes I think the lack of value people place on education and skills, uh, and you've only got to find yourself in a pickle. Um, either legally or financially, where you've got to uh, you know, enlist a, a decent lawyer or an accountant or both, and you realize how expensive those mistakes can be. So you're better off getting it right the first time and really learning. So I'm a huge advocate for that. So you know, where do your skill set sit? Do you have an interest in something? You know, you go back to your days at school, um, you know, the subjects you typically got the best grades in were probably the subjects you were the most interested in. And if you want to get good grades, you don't get a B plus in life. It's about you know, your, your overall success in life, so to speak. So if you can find things that you're interested in in life and then study around them, you'll typically be you know, rewarded handsomely in the capitalistic world that we live in. So you know, what is your skill set? Do you have an eye for which suburb is going to pop next if we're going back to property? Or if it's about the stock market, is it you know, which, which sectors are likely to fare best in a certain time within the economy or do you know something about a niche type business that, that that's about to take off great example of that would be buy now pay later if we wind the clock back seven eight years ago um, you know and if you're one of the early investors into that space or you think this is what the market's looking for you'd have made a killing so if you've got a skill for for those sorts of things of recognizing those big picture trends in, in, in life that you can you can do particularly well. Um, you know, many years ago, just to give you an example of that, I had a buddy of mine try to drag me and I'm kicking and screaming, I didn't follow, um, into self-storage. Uh, and, and everyone's seen over the last sort of 15 years just how successful self-storage has been. And at the time it was an absolute belter of an investment to want to let pass. Uh, and, I didn't, and I didn't feel I had the skill set at the time uh, to embrace that, I was pretty busy growing my business. I hadn't got it to a stage where it was more passive for me. Um, and so I just didn't feel I had the bandwidth. And so I elected to pass on it. It's cost me, I, I, I don't even want to talk about what it's cost me. It's <laughs> making me 
but you know, at the same time, I went down a pathway that I was I was I was probably more interested in. So that that that's an aspect of that. Um, you know, so learning about learning about the investment class that you're in, I think, is is, is crucial. Um, you mentioned also about the ability to understand the market that you're in and the timing uh, around markets. And I think you know that's that in itself is 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 hugely important because not all assets perform as well under certain conditions. And so, you know, that does require a much, much higher level of skill. And what I would probably suggest to people listening to this, that's the heavy lifting. You probably want to outsource a little bit to people that are professionals in that space or more experienced certainly than you. That doesn't mean to say they're always going to be right either. Recognize and ask the question. And, and again, when we talk about building your team in other podcasts, knowing the questions to ask your professional advisors are almost as important as the professional advisor in themselves. And so putting them on the spot to say, okay, where do you see us in the economy right now based on your 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of experience doing this, which sectors or which asset classes would you normally expect to do the best under these and why? Brilliant question. You'll make them earn their money. You'll probably see a bead of sweat forming on their forehead as well. But this is about taking control yourself. You don't need to be the smartest person in the room, but you ask the smart questions and get them to work for you. I love that. That's a, mm. that's a really good observation there. Great yeah. point, AB. So in terms of anything else on the skill set you wanted to cover? I think so, uh, education, mm. your own skill set, and the economic cycle. Yeah. That's pretty I, much I, it. I, I'll give you one further one on, on, on the skill side, uh, and, that, and that's in in the value add. On, the, on, on Again, property is probably a good one. To, trading and the stock market, you can value add through using smart strategy. So if you've got the skills instead of just having a share portfolio to maybe do cash on demand or covered calls, you're going to augment your return. Requires a high level of skill. um, And if you've built that skill set, you're going to get a better return, uh, a lower volatility of return, less risk. So that's an example in the stock market. On the property side um, is, is, again, are you going to be able to spot the next suburb if you've not got the skill set to know which suburb's going to pop? do you bring some skills to the equation in terms of value adding to the property, such as a renovation? Uh, yeah, and that's something that you know can be quite grand in terms of you know, a, a renovation, or it can be something that's really simple. You know, a paint job and new carpets and new curtains and a general cleanup of the joint. You know, maybe a new kitchen over time makes a substantial difference. You might not better put the kitchen in, but you can get the paintbrush out and do that. And there are things you can do. It's just down to sweat equity and do you have the skill or the fortitude or backbone to want to do that. It's a, it's a really good point, actually. A personal anecdote, when I bought my investment property, my dad was a painter back in the mm. day. So, of course, the first thing you do when you buy it, dad, can you paint in now, Shat? I'll be sure you. I'm sure he didn't know no, he, did. he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> I bought him lunch that day. But that's a really good example. He yeah. was able to come in, paint yeah. a room for me that was once blue yeah. now to white. Looked great. Yeah. Perfect. And, and the same in the garden and the yard. You know, you don't need to be, you know, Jamie Jury, but you can do stuff to turn it from being a, an unkempt jungle out there into something that's, you get a re-turf, put the lawn down, happy days. You can go onto YouTube and see how to do that. It's not rocket science. And they're the small things. Um, and again, you know, like we're sort of coloring outside the lines a little bit here and they may seem like they're common sense, but making money doesn't have to be that hard. If you're prepared to value add by doing the work that somebody else doesn't want to do, then you build a premium into the the, the asset that you're looking to build. Uh, and, and if you're the owner of that asset, that's fantastic because your net value is going up. So, you know, a couple of weekends doing the yard, get it reseeded, get the lawn down, you know, get rid of that 1970s bonds garden and replacing it with something you know your tenants are not going to be a wreck makes sense of as an investment property 
Beautiful. Last camp of questions, AB, and arguably the most important camp of them all comes under that risk banner. Mm. So number one, what are the risks of the investment itself? And number two, what is your personal attitude to risk? Two questions. Yeah, well, let's start with the personal attitude to risk because, you know, again, if you sort of look in the, in the world of financial planning, you have to understand what your client's risk profile is to be able to provide better quality advice to them. And again, not all investors are the same. And that notion of peer group pressure or peer group you know, advice type stuff, decision making can be quite challenging because, you know, even if I look at the smorgasbord of teams uh, that we've got here in our business, you know, we've got some people that are fairly aggressive on the risk side and we've got some people that are really conservative. And if you are working with someone that's more aggressive, that's who you start to become. Uh, because you just it's just by virtue of the peer group bleeding over into what you're doing. And that can be very, very dangerous uh, because you're not being true to yourself. I see this often um, with our financial planning team when we have a couple and I always advocate that, you know, have your partner involved with this, even if they want to be totally hands off have your partner involved um, in all points of the discussion, even if they leave the decision to you. And, and you see the difference in risk attitude between uh, two partners in the same relationship, where one might be you know, fairly gung-ho, the other one very conservative. And the reason we want both involved is, you know, the ball's gonna drop somewhere in between, which is probably the best fit for that couple, as opposed to something that suits one or other of the parties um, in, in its own right. And, and there are ways that we assess um, you know, people's risk attitude. Um, there's some standard um, questionnaire type stuff, which is immensely frustrating to go through and fill in. You go, oh, really? It, it, but it actually is so, so important to establish you know, where you sit on that risk spectrum, if you will, for what you should be doing. And, and the importance of doing that work up front, don't, oh, oh, yeah, everyone, oh, let me rephrase that. Sometimes we can we can be we can have a veneer of you know being macho, and I'm just going to dive in and yeah, I love risk. And if if that's not you, those sleepless nights you get up looking at your investment moving around in a way that you don't want it to move detracts significantly from the quality of life you've got because you're just doing something that's not suited to you. You know, if you if you're someone that doesn't like hot food, going out for a spicy meal is not fun. You had food, but there's a ramification from it, and that's exactly the same with investing. So, identifying what you stand for uh, as an investor is a crucial step. It's not one to pick up at the end; it's the one to start with. So that's why it comes very, very early on in the journey. And I guess the second point to that is is the actual risk around investments in themselves, and this comes down to if you've done your education. Um, one of the things that you should be doing is your due diligence. Yeah. So what's the max, what's my best case? What's my worst case? What's the track record look like? Is it audited? What are the stats to back up the claim that this investment's going to get me from X to Y? What's the, yeah, and a regulator, unfortunately, love to provide a client notice, you know, the past performance is no guarantee of future performance. In reality, past performance is a fantastic indicator of future performance, and it's something you should really look at. So, you know, what are the what are what what's my due diligence look like? Am I talking to clients uh, that have let's let's say you know have used a particularly boutique service? So, let's say you're involved with developer finance, which is you know way down the line for most people. Um, can I talk to some clients that have used this service? Has something changed within the economic cycle? By the way, that means that that service shouldn't work as well now. All those sorts of things from a due diligence perspective. Um, what's my biggest drawdown potential on this investment? What happens if it goes backward? And we can all be, I guess, blinded by the allure that things only go up. And, and it may well be that over time they do. 
but there can be an awful lot of broken glass on the floor in those lulls. Uh, if we take the stock market as an example, you know, oh, don't worry, it always recovers, which to a large extent is a truism. Not the case in Japan, actually. Here's a stat, a bit of trivia for you. 31st of December, 1989, the Nikkei was at 38,915 points. It's now half that. It's never got close back to that level. Wow, in that many years, uh, that's in, crazy. In, since 1989, which is, which is incredible. Structural issues in the economy. Um, if we take the dot-com boom and bust or the GFC, you know, oh, just hold on to your blue chips, they always come back. It took 12 years for the Australian market to recover from the GFC to get back to those pre-GFC levels. It took 15 years for the NASDAQ to get back to um, you know, pre-dot-com bust It's a long levels. time. And if you need that money, if you're transitioning to retirement, which was a huge issue for many people um, through the GFC, you know, if you've got three, four years left to work, all of a sudden your super is worth 30% less than what you thought it was going to be. That's leaving you in a very different income perspective in retirement, and you don't have that luxury of oh, it'll recover. It took twelve years, so you know it, it, you've got to be very, very minded of that. Property is another one where you know oftentimes people don't see the downside because we often see the stat that property doubles every every seven years. Whether that's true or not, I'm yet to establish. I've been looking at that pretty hard for the last <laughs> thirty-five years, and I'm still yet to establish whether that's true or not. Um, and, and and through that time, there can be a variety of different factors that can hit you. You know, people will argue that, well, property is safer because someone needs somewhere to live. They do, but property by its very definition is a geared asset. If you buy $100 worth of BHP shares, you've put the money down. If you buy a property, you've put some of your money down, but the rest of it is borrowed. So there's a debt requirement to service and geared products as the regulator will state are more risky. Um, you know, and, and so to, to that end, if the value of the property drops, which it can, and I've seen this happen, happened to a member of my family, um, below a certain threshold, the bank say, you've got to put some more cash in to keep the loan to value ratio where it needs to be. If you don't have that cash, well, you run the risk of being foreclosed and losing the property and the deposit you've put in and the place that you used to call home. So there are risks to those sorts of assets that people oftentimes don't think about. Well, if interest rates really get jacked up, and, and it was interesting to see, you know, with the interest rate cycle that we're hearing in Australia right now, that APRA worked on, oh, we'll, we'll work on X percent interest rates. But I'd almost go to the point I'd double that just to give people that 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 comfort zone of knowing if the unthinkable happens, you can still ride it out. And I, I guess that sort of disaster contingency is really important. So do you have the ability to put more money in? Um, if you don't, well, what are you going to do? Oh, it's okay, I'll sell it. But if you've got to put more money in, it's because the price has dropped already. So you're going to be crystallizing a loss. Have you really thought that through when you did your game plan for buying that particular asset? So, you know, there's a bit more to it than just signing on the dotted line and kicking back and watching the net value go up over time. Is You've got to take this into account. And this is why financial education, so that you actually contemplate and have these kind of conversations so you're not going in blindly, are absolute gold. And if you've gone through this and looked at the questions that we've posed in here prior to buying an asset, you're probably going to make better investment decisions than someone that's just flying by the seat of their pants going, I've got some money, I better start investing. Everyone else's. That's right. And it doesn't require really that much time to actually ask yourself these questions. It just requires you to 25 start. minutes of listening to us. Today 25 minutes of listening start. to us, you're making notes and working this out along the fly. But maybe mm. it's great advice. I think really solid questions and, and great considerations. Are there any final comments before we finish up today? What we've talked about is you know, the questions to ask yourself before you start. As always, and I'm sure I'll be kicking the lid off my coffin when I get older with this one, <laughs> just get started. The best time to start was yesterday. But 
at the same time before you start ask the questions. Don't use this as a stall or I need to go through this 12 month due diligence process before I do anything. Get started. It doesn't take a long time to ask these questions, but they're important ones to really consider. And look, there are others. We've just used the sort of, you know, the, the, the headline stuff for people to get into. And as you go through being trained to build up expertise on the asset class you're looking at. And if I look at the you know, 20 odd years we've spent now teaching people about the stock market, of course there are gonna be further questions as you dive deeper in this, but you're already in that lane looking at it and getting schooled professionally as to where risks sit and more importantly, how you can mitigate them. So yeah, just get started, work out what your goals and game plan needs to look like and start moving through this in a fairly sequential order and just make it happen because you know the sooner you get started, uh, the sooner you'll realize you don't need to regret not starting. Well said, AB. Great way to finish. Thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating. More importantly, share this podcast with someone you know that could use this information to help them on the journey. We look forward to hosting you next week.